So could I ask the ushers to bring the baskets? Could you all get the baskets with the pieces? You have them? Are they? Where are they? Oh, yeah, so they're baskets. They're pieces. So go ahead and, uh, and pass those around and uh, take one as you're passing the baskets. So the neat thing is that um, we really um, splurged and got a gift for you this Lent. Your church is giving you a gift. And as you can see, it's a broken piece of pottery. Now, I, I know last week many, uh, many of you were hoping that I would smash one of the pots in the act of worship itself. You were kind of sitting on pins and needles waiting for it to happen, but it didn't, and it's not going to. We're not going to smash anything in worship. But if, if you were here on Tuesday night uh, and, and you were having a meeting, you might have heard a strange banging noise coming from the sanctuary. Ellen Gadbury and the liturgical arts group were crushing these beautiful vases and pots. They were doing it as they prayed over them. And they've saved some of the pieces to give to you as a gift. And and so now the question is, what should I do with them? Well, that, of course, is up to you. We hope that you will hold them. Maybe once a day you will pick up this piece and you will hold it and feel it in your hands, especially the edges Be careful. It is a little bit sharp. It's supposed to be that way. You will see in the course of holding this piece perhaps something about your own life. Maybe as you have begun to hear, and as I hope you will see for yourself throughout the course of Lent, there is something that we can learn from our experiences of being broken. So take this piece with you, hold it throughout worship today, and after you're done, when we leave, perhaps you will wrap it in a cloth, maybe you will keep it in your pocket or your bag, and and take it out with you once a day, like a rosary, run your hands along its edges, speak to it, let it speak to you. Now let me introduce this morning's scripture before we read it. It needs a bit of introduction, I think. How many of you have read the book of Lamentations recently? I thought so. Lamentations, if you haven't spent some time with it of late, is the official poetry of the exile. If your biblical history is not as sharp as you wish it was, the exile was this time in the life of God's people. In 597 BCE, an army, an invading army from Babylon, came and encircled the city of Jerusalem for 18 months, the Babylonians held a siege around the city. The people starved, and they suffered greatly. Finally, after those 18 months, the Babylonians entered the city gates, and without going into any of the details, they did what every invading army has done since the dawn of time. They committed unthinkable atrocities, the most egregious kinds of sacrilege. Lamentations, as you will hear, is the story of what it feels like to watch your world fall apart. 
verse after verse, the poet speaks about the ruins of her life. And if it feels hard to hear, it should. From Lamentations, the third chapter, beginning in verse 1. I am one who has seen affliction. Under the rod of God's wrath, God has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone, God turns his hand again and again all day long. God has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. God has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. God has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. God has walled me about so that I cannot escape. God has put a heavy chain on me. Though I call and cry for help, God shuts out my prayer. God has blocked my ways with hewn stones. God has made my paths crooked. God is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. God led me off of my way and tore me to pieces. God has made me desolate. God bent his bow and set me as a mark for his arrow. God shot into my vitals the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all my people, the object of their taunt songs all day long. God has filled me with bitterness, has sated me with wormwood. God has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in God. The Lord is good to those who wait for God, to the soul that seeks God. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although God causes grief, God will have compassion according to the abundance of God's steadfast love. For God does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. The word of God for the people of God. Yeah, that's not easy to read or to hear, I would guess. In the same way, a few, a few weeks ago, we said that we never hear a song of songs in church because it's, it's really just too sexy for church. We don't hear lamentations a lot in church for different reasons, though. It's brutal. 
It is unsparing. It's hard to hear this read aloud. It's hard in part because we, all of us, we don't like to sit with other people when terrible things are going on in their lives. We don't know, really, do we, what to do with their pain. Our instincts are to shield our eyes or to walk away. Or if we do sit there, we we may have the instincts to minimize their pain or to try and fix it or else to change the subject. We have a profound discomfort with suffering. It makes us lie to each other all the time, just like this, right? How are you, we say. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, sometimes we're not. The writer of Lamentations is not. She's not afraid to say what's going on As she describes her suffering in such vivid detail, the truth is that for those of us who don't resist it, we identify with it. We recognize these feelings, that feeling of being encircled by dread, full of despair, desperate, angry, full of anguish. What's also hard about this poem, I think, is to hear the poet say, God, you did this. That's as hard for some of us to handle as the pain itself. Some of us may find ourselves wanting to defend God, to say, no, God doesn't cause bad things to happen. God doesn't do that. Our God is good. God loves us and wants the best for us all the time. Like God all of a sudden needs us as a character witness. I'm not going to tell you this morning that the writer of Lamentations is correct, that God is the author of our suffering. But I will say that I think it's just as absurd to think of enduring one of the traumas of our life and thinking that God is nowhere to be found in it. Was God just not paying attention? Was God out to lunch? Did God think my life wasn't important enough to intervene? No, God must be there. God must be here in the breaking and amidst the broken. When, not if, but when, life falls apart, the life that we have carefully and earnestly made, when it falls apart, It is a remarkable gesture of faith to cry out to God like the writer of Lamentations does. What the hell, God? What are you you doing? Why this? Why me? Jesus on the cross cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why me? Is not the cry of someone who has given up on faith It's the opposite. Why me is the cry of someone who is using the faith that they have to get by and get through. Crying out to God or blaming God, even cursing God. I think they're all ways of trusting God. All of it is part of the great mutual dance of our faith in a living God. God has said, I will not abandon you no matter what you do, and we will not abandon God no matter what God does or does not do. 
Sometimes it is our cries that keep us in contact. Now we all know there are people, bless their hearts, we say, who when we are going through something hard, want us to accept our pain with spiritual equanimity. They try to take the big picture, say things like, it's part of God's plan. You know that, right? Or God doesn't give you a burden that you can't bear. That's crap. And it has no place in anyone's theological vocabulary. Every one of us wrestles, and in many ways wrestles alone with our suffering, with the feeling of being inconsolable. We must feel the brokenness. We must cry and rage and never accept theological platitudes about a good God while we're in the midst of it. Which is exactly why I'm so peeved that right here in the middle of Lamentations pops up this same kind of smug theological truism. Did you notice it while we were reading? Like, we're, we're doing the full-on lament. We're, like, right in the middle of it. We're talking about what it feels like to have our innards gored by God. And this little voice pops up. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, people who study the book of Lamentations for a living don't know exactly by whom or when or how these poems were written. And they are divided over what to do with this little nugget of hope. They all agree that it's completely out of place. If you read Lamentations, all five chapters from beginning to end, you'll know that it's this relentless kind of lament, all except for this one tiny portion right in the very middle of the very middle chapter. Maybe there was some editor a long time ago who was like uh, receiving the manuscript and was like, man, this is a great poem about grief, but, you know, we got to have a little hope in there or it's never going to sell to the public. Probably not. There's a formal structure in this this book of Lamentations, in this particular third chapter. There's a formal structure that suggests that that this wasn't just a last-minute insertion. The author wrote it this way on purpose, saying there's nothing that looks good from where I sit. But I'm going to structure all of the misery that I see around a core of God's goodness. I'm just going to drop in this affirmation about God right here in the middle of this book about grief and let its ripples work their way through the waves of grief. We don't know why this little incongruous bit of hope got its way into this text about what it feels like to lose everything. But what we do know and what we can say is that this little piece 
functions very much like the stupidly audacious quality of hope itself. Hope, as others before me have said and have said much more beautifully, hope looks around at the evidence that the world provides us, its brutality, our inhumanity, the injustice, the loss of our loves too often and too soon. Hope looks at all of it and says, yes, it's bleak. But if I go back into a deeper kind of remembering, if I look at what my heart knows to be true in spite of what I see, I know that God is good. This little passage functions just like hope does in our lives. It is foolish. It is naive. And it is radically beautiful. It's like grace itself. It redefines all of the loss. It rewrites the whole story. Each one of us, at different times, will work through our own losses with fear and with trembling with rage and with tears. Every one of us will do it. Every one of us will do it differently. Some of us will go uh, through all of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief in order. Some of us will do them backwards. Some of us will cry until our eyes are dry. Some of us will go numb and feel nothing. Some of us will seek false solace. Some of us will live in denial until we can't live there any longer. But what we will find... What all of us will find, no matter our process of grieving, is that loss is somehow necessary. Loss is part of what is real. It is part of the great unified field of our existence. Loss happens to every living being. And it is so much more common in our fragile world than our naive and youthful, ego-driven selves ever wants to admit. The hard part is we don't get to choose the losses that break open our lives. A mild discomfort reveals something deeper in our bodies. The boy who used to chase soccer balls into your flower garden doesn't come home one night. Or perhaps you built a life with someone who once gazed into your eyes and promised to be there, and you discover they had another life and other dreams. These things happen. They fall apart, our lives. They do. When we see that loss is necessary, something about us changes. From that moment on, everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we know to be true changes. Simply put, things become more beautiful when we know they are perishable. When we claim loss as a necessary part of life, 
beauty and goodness appear to us as gifts, never again as givens. Rabbi Harold Kushner, after losing his child, sat with his grief and wrote a book that came to be called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's a lovely book, and I commend it to all of you. Kushner's grief, of course, devastated him. It threw his life into total chaos. It caused him to question everything about God. And then, after a while, Kushner said that the experience made him a better counselor, a better rabbi. He was wiser. He was more forgiving. He had a deeper reservoir for patience. Something good had come out of this incredible trauma that he had endured, and yet, he continues, he would give it all up the growth, the strength, the wisdom, if only, if only he could have his son back. All of that is true. Our losses are strangely necessary. It doesn't mean we have to call them good. It doesn't mean we welcome them. They just are part of what is true. Things fall apart. And your calling, when they do, is to gather up the pieces. Not to pretend you don't hurt. Not to deny that you're broken. Just to hold the pieces together. Hold together the loss with the love. Hold together the beauty and the brokenness. Hold together the anguish and this audacious hope. You don't hold them alone. You hold them with God. We hold them together with this deep ancestral memory that we have. We hold them together with a knowledge that doesn't come from what you see. It comes from your deep heart knowledge of God's goodness and love. Losses are necessary. But so is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never end. They are new each morning. God, great is your faithfulness. invitation to you this morning is to spend a couple of minutes in silence with this piece of uh, pottery, this gift that we have given you, and spend some time in prayer, maybe meditating on your own experience of loss, and also remembering the goodness of God. Let us be silent together. <laughs> 